0: This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. And I need to tell you this, Chris. My Mother's Day was also brought to you by Zupan's Markets. I, I should say my wife's Mother's Day.
1: I went in and had an incredible gift bag put together and got some help by yeah. one of the women in the Macadam store. Yeah, flowers for someone for, taken care of. For a special person for Mother's Day. Yeah. It was nice to be able yep. to do I that. I did
0: all my meal. My girls came in with me and we picked out stuff to cook for mom and Good. it was awesome.
1: So, score. Yeah, absolutely score. Other thing that's a score...
0: Burgers are back, baby.
1: At the Breezeway in Lake Grove. Mm -hmm. they got three different things going on at their different stores. Thursdays from 11 to 7, they've got burgers in the Breezeway. And if you happen to be in Lake Oswego or you want to travel there for this. Yeah. Burger Friday and Macadam every Friday from 11.30 a.m. to 6. And uh, they got burgers, fries, great toppings, uh, weekly specials, and more.
0: Other thing you can put on your calendar is the Taste of Summer happening Saturday, June 3rd. That's 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, storewide summer sampling event. So
1: Those things are great, oh, man. Yeah. You walk into Zupans and you eat oh, yeah. before you buy a thing. I'm
0: totally, it's the best. Now another I think there's another thing here that I'm gonna probably get myself in trouble with, but I'm totally okay with this. <laughs> I love cinnamon rolls. Yeah. And now they've got cinnamon rolls. With a Z. With a Z so fresh a little... baked, served warm cinnamon rolls available every morning at the Burnside and Lake Grove locations, created exclusively by Bluebird Bakers.
1: That is incredible. Yeah. And uh one other thing. Yeah. Pokey Bar at all three locations. Oh yeah. Um and that is a fantastic easy and delicious meal.
0: Three locations, Zoo Pans, Markets, everything you need.
2: I can't stand the rain Against my window Bringing back sweet memories
0: it is right at the Fort, Portland's Food Scene Podcast with your host Chris Angeles from Portland's Food Adventures. And I'm Court Johnson from Portland's Radio.
1: Yeah, you added an S, Portland Food Adventures.
0: Did I add did I? It's Portland's okay, food...
1: but they are Portland's Food Adventures.
0: Yeah, that's right. I did. Ha- I did I think I added an S and then I took an S away from somewhere. I'd
1: like to say, as they did, I can't remember what the, who the advertiser was when I grew up, but add the S for savings. Oh, yeah. So, but I, you know, I, I guess I could put a code out there. Sure. Portland Food Adventures. Yeah, I got to write that time. So, um uh and speaking of Portland Food Adventures, the guy we have on has been curating uh adventures for people in Portland for yeah. quite quite some time in different forms. In different forms. N- not
0: just uh, we're going to talk about feast, but also in in a food hall.
1: Food hall mm-hmm. and feast and you know, he's he's appeared on television talking yeah. about food. He's been uh He's been an ambassador for the Portland food scene for a while. And I have to say, when I was sitting here, I was a little in awe at all he's accomplished uh, in this city. Yeah. And some of it while he wasn't even living here. Right. When he was in New York City. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I wanted to have Mike Thielen on because when we see Mike, he's often out there. Well, we've seen him on television, but I've seen him a lot being the PR face of Feast. Right and I don't, I, don't, I don't mean he's the publicity guy, but he's often touting the wonders of feast right, and, well, and he's, he's deservedly behind it and he, so yeah, he's behind he, it he knows what he needs to do so but but you know he makes the rounds in September when it happens, mm-hmm. and so he's saying a lot of the same things. I wanted to get to know Mike. I wanted people to understand who Mike Thielen is, yeah, and not necessarily just what he does and because we get that um, and I hope. This podcast, where we start start from his childhood in Scapoose and talk about some of his food memories and things that he has done, mm-hmm. uh, accomplishes that, and I think it did. And um, it was nice to get to know him. As a matter of fact, it went really fast. He texted me after, and he said, "This this that hour went really, really fast. fast." Yeah, yeah. So, and he did a lot of talking. There weren't a lot of places for you and me to no. interject. You get Mike Thielen going. I mean,
0: well, when it's a, when it's a guy who is not only he's holding true to his portland roots but he's also traveled the world and lived abroad for you know years right that's pretty that's a story
1: yeah well he is a story Mm -hmm. and he's young too he's got a lot there's a lot more to go one of the things that is still to go is uh what they're doing in austin is called hot luck and it's a food and music festival that is actually will have taken place by the time you hear this and if you check my Instagram, which I could put some stuff, some up on Food Podcast PDX, mm-hmm. but I'm probably going to put more up on Portland Food ADV. Go back a couple of weeks and you'll see quite a bit from the Hot Luck Festival, which um, I'm going to be. I'm happy to be able to check out tomorrow. Yeah, I fly out. So,
0: what we're doing right here is you're going to get a, uh, quite possibly an Instagram bump from this podcast releasing after those pictures came Let's out. Let's see what happens. Yeah, I don't like those people. When you
1: used to have me on kink, the yep. Instagram bump was, you know, I'd check out, there'd be 70 new followers. Right. So, we need to do that. Which I
0: never even got, and I was a host.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> because they're listening to you all the time. Right. But, uh, uh, <clears throat> but that stopped after a while. I don't know what happened. So, yeah. um, but we're doing fine on Instagram. We're actually, uh, Gary the foodie's posting a lot of food on our food podcast. He's our biggest,
0: yeah, he's our biggest uh, curator of, right? But it's still on
1: my Portland Food Adventures, where if you don't get tired of my sweet dog and coastal pictures mixed in with food, we're about to hit 10,000 followers. But who's counting? Right. I'm not. I'm glad to get there. It's only been a few, a couple of years. Yeah. So um, there's some good stuff on there. At any rate, some good stuff here. Mike Thielen, Feast and uh portland uh pine street market pine street market thank you mm-hmm. i was going down the wrong direction on mm-hmm. that and hot luck as well so uh enjoy you didn't want to
3: shave for this
1: what you didn't want to shave for this
3: i have a face for radio <laughs>
1: you're not the first one to say that and thank court and i that we've always said the same thing that's why we're doing this Oh, not necessarily radio. I've I've decided to stop fighting that radio thing. People are going to refer to it as radio, right? No matter what, right? So,
3: so this isn't radio. We don't call this radio.
1: Not really. It's podcasting. There's nothing about radio. It's just it looks like it. it
3: I feel like sounds like. I feel it. like we're doing radio. Having done radio, that's why I decided <laughs> to stop fighting it.
0: Well, I think given the fact that we are recording at a radio station, kind of plays into that idea well, that's, as well. that's but, true,
3: too, but no. we really... I mean, I walked past signs that said 95.5 on no. the way in here. I'm wearing a headset. Uh, you're wearing a headset.
1: You're talking to a guy who's going to be on the radio today. Yeah. No. No. Not me.
3: You guys all have good pipes, too.
1: You sound like radio people. Well, I today especially, I was at uh, an event last night, and I guess uh, the acoustics at Chesa are rough. Yep. Um. So 65 people there, I was... Speaking louder than I probably thought I was, and that's why today is my best. I think my best radio voice that I've had since we've been doing that it. Well, well
3: good, there's good morning. There's, there's very few career paths one can have with with a radio voice. You can either be, po- you could podcast, you could go on radio, you could be a strip club DJ. You oh, could there's do, something i I, mean, there's, I gotta start making, write, writing these down. Making <laughs> notes? these down, Mike. I, actually, I gotta start I'm 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 not done yet. You could you could announce. You'd be the guy who announces, like, you know, what's on sale um, at, on which aisle. We just did that. Store. We right. did that with for that zoopans
1: and standard TV and appliances. Sure. We do that. Yeah. You can
3: do that. T- I mean, there's a lot you can do, actually. There's, there's, you know, you could do voiceovers. We could all, you know. Yeah, but those are a dime a dozen
1: nowadays. People used to make a lot of money doing that. Do they not anymore? Some do. But you can. You I can, think
0: I think the advent of, of websites that connect people with People kind of lowballing other people has kind of really driven it down. So
1: I got great voiceovers done for my clients. It used to be a whole four hundred fifty dollar deal for something because you had to pay for the facility, mm-hmm. and now you can get that done for thirty five bucks and in fifteen minutes. Yeah. get it done. Mm-hmm. So that's how that's changed a little. But there are still people who are making money doing that. Um, James and,
3: Earl Jones, for example. Well, yeah,
1: just a little bit, just a little <laughs> bit. But. Um,
3: because Darth, Darth, the voice of Darth Vader, can sell you. I mean, that'll make me buy IKEA. Yeah. Or watch the news. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or yeah, didn't that was uh, the CNN? Is yeah, he, he still to, doing CNN? I'm not listening. to I don't, CNN. I don't
0: think. I, don't, I think every now and then they pull that out just kind of right. go retro. The this right. is CNN or whatever it was,
3: which is amazing because when Darth Vader, I mean, it just sounds. Let's the voice of Vader comes with a certain degree of authority. Let's let's not let's be clear.
1: That's pretty iconic. So. Uh, were you listening to, were you a star Wars fan growing up in Who's just to make the segue? So so who wasn't,
3: I mean, growing up when I grew up, born in 1976, star Wars came out in 1977. You know, I mean, literally those were the films that, you know, defined your youth. Well, wait a minute. Then you were, then you were one year old when it came out. Still though. But you have to remember like world was not so immediate back then. I remember, first of all. If if there was a movie that was out like Star Wars, you, there was no such thing as just being able to watch anything on demand. I mean, I, I I distinctly remember being you know seven or eight years old, and then everyone all of a sudden had a VCR. My family was always sort of late to adapt, so you know we didn't have one for a couple of years later, but we did have HBO. And I remember when I was seven years old, the initial Star Wars was on HBO, and and we would we my brother and I would watch it like every single day. Wow. But, you know, but we take for granted like it wasn't that long ago. When we couldn't watch whatever movie we wanted to watch, we couldn't listen to whatever song we wanted to watch. Now we can
0: just do it on our phones.
3: Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys remember though, like, I mean, amongst the staff at Feast, you know, we're a bunch, we're folks who are like half in our 40s and half in our 20s or half in our late 30s. We will all be half in our 40s by the end of this year. But, you know, my younger staff doesn't know what high speed dubbing is. Mm. They don't remember sitting near the radio waiting for to record that song. Do you guys remember that? Oh, You're yeah. like, you know the Billy Ocean song is going to come on. And you would like miss the first, and you bit had,
1: of it. To, had to remember to hit both buttons—the oh, record yeah. and the play—at the yep, same time. Exactly.
3: I mean, those were these are skills that like this is so far. This was not that long ago. I just got
0: to say, my, my tape recorder was advanced enough when you pushed the record, it also hit the play. Yeah, so but see, I was way,
1: way. way before either of you, <laughs> so I had I could tell you about some of the technology I was dealing with. Uh, you know, in the late '60s, early '70s, real probably. Der- real, real. T-
3: I had a we Phon- had the real. photographs der- and whatnot.
1: Pardon me? Phonographs and whatnot. Oh, phonographs. And how about phony phone calls? You can't do phony phone calls anymore. No, like like prank calls. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We used to do those all the time. That was what we did on snow days. We look forward to snow days to do phony phone calls to people. See, And someday I'm going to do the whole routine. I still remember, word for word, our shtick. I don't want to make this about me, but someday we got to do that. It's fun.
3: Well, I mean, and and other things. I mean, you know, it's interesting, like Steve Jobs for being – contributing so much to the world and, you know, being this admired entrepreneur killed the mixtape. I mean, you remember like when you'd have, you'd like a girl and you'd make her a Mm mixtape and she'd make you a mixtape and it was a thing and like, like the I, the act of making a mixtape is is a, is a lost art. Well now now you now you make people
0: playlists on on either Apple Music or on Spotify. You can do that and send it to them, but it's true
1: not. but, but it's same. not the same because you can do It's not going that. out of your way. It's like it was like flowers. Yeah, there's
3: microstocking about. It's like writing a handwritten letter. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're, you're 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 you can do a playlist and that's basically saying, "Here's here's what I think you should listen to." But mm. the playlist is like, you know, you you know, you depending on, you know, the the, depending on the severity and intensity of the relationship you, know, you you know you you cannot put a al Green song in like first or second song right and you would like listen to a couple of songs and you know Songs two and three would dictate song four. Songs four and five would dictate song six. I mean, it was a process. And I'm, no, don't get me wrong. I'm not a luddite. I like I like having all my music in my phone. But, right, but that well, is, that process is gone. And
0: it, no, and it's exactly the process because yeah. you had to. You actually had to dub those in song for song in real time.
1: And I was doing it on reel to reels. Right. I remember the big reel to reels, and I don't even know how I disseminated that. But you had a better idea for you know if you if you wanted to be. Uh, curry favor with a woman I was sending it to all my male friends well I mean so, we did
3: that too they mm-hmm. were just I didn't put Al Green on those tapes yeah well, it was more like you know sir Mix-a-lop. come on cop right, you. Sure. you know you
1: did by mistake once in a while uh, it's like I, you
3: know I'm comfortable enough in my masculinity where I could make a, a, a male friend a mixtape of Al Green I think know. at oh, this yeah. a
1: day and age but yeah. back when you're a teenager you, you're not as comfortable Pro- probably not. Yeah. Probably not. I just got horrified when I turned off my privacy settings on store uh, on Spotify recently, and uh, I got a note from Rick Giancarelli about listening to Kiki D. So um, ah. it just came up though. It was a playlist that I didn't control, and it just came up. So those things, those things I put after-
3: mine on privacy because like literally, I mean, yeah, I mean because. Yeah, and no you, one you wants got, to see what you're listening to. All I don't day want long. anyone to see what I'm listening to. Yeah, no, I screwed up. Private. i just you know it. the worst, and and I know we don't want to digress too much, but if all these we things, do, this is they know digression. what you're listening. They know they know what you're. The worst is Venmo, like like Venmo. You guys know it's the app that you can move money back and forth, which is actually great because if you're with a bunch of folks and somebody doesn't have cash, they're like you know Venmo me twenty bucks. They pay the tab I didn't It's know great. That. <laughs> the problem is, is if you don't put Venmo on privacy. And everyone should. Everyone listening, put your damn Venmo on privacy because it says, you know, Greg just paid, you know, Kiki $25. And it's like, who gives a shit? Like, you know, that's private. I don't want to know, you know. And, and some of them are really weird. It's like, you know, this person paid this person $400 yeah. at like four in the morning. Then, you're yeah. like, what
1: was
0: that? And then you are like, that son of a bitch owes me 200 bucks.
3: <laughs> 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 so... Anyways,
1: yeah. Well, there's a lot of those things. We you want to talk about social media? We we should we could have a, there could be a podcast griping about social media sure. faux pas.
3: Well, should we talk food? Yeah,
1: I guess. I don't know. I kind of the idea behind this. We could. Eat, I, I noticed you already mentioned feast. We're, we can get there, but Did I? I really want people to know Mike because no. I've heard you interviewed a lot and you're really good at talking about you know your business and what you do and that's great, but. We want to know, we want to know, from Little Mike to Big Mike, <laughs> so um, yeah, I just want to hear I wasn't here what it was like to grow up in Scott Poos in the seventies and eighties, and what your visions were you know what your experiences were there. What were your experiences with food? We can start there
3: okay, well, so I guess the first thing is is you know my my family has been around Oregon a long time, you know, my grandfather, my family is basically steeped in food, liked food. Um, very sort of diverse family that comes from all over. I'll get to that in just a sec. But my grandfather was a grocer. My great-grandfather was a grocer. Um, had a couple grocery stores in Portland um, in early 20th century. One was in Sullivan's Gulch. Another was actually, if you guys know where House 5 is on Killingsworth and Albina, that was my grandfather's grocery store. Um, and, you know, so we kind of go back far here and we go back far in food. But I actually grew up in Scapoose, um, you know, in a family of six kids. But my mom you know, who had my brother and I was my dad's, my mom was my father's second wife. His first wife had passed away and he had four daughters with his first wife and they were a lot older. So we actually didn't grow up in the same house, but just, they all married, um, you know, men from sort of different cultures. One was married to a guy from Mexico. One was married from a guy of Japanese descent. And, you know, we had as a result a lot of really interesting food growing up. So here I was growing up in, in Scapoose and one of my favorite stories I like to tell is my brother in law Gilbert in Scapoose in a subdivision. You know, you, there weren't like halal butchers back then where you could go buy a, a you know, a a goat. You couldn't get goat meat, so he would like buy them live and slaughter them in the garage of his of his you know of his uh you know, suburban like, you know, house and it would freak the neighbors out and like, you know, there's like blood running down, you <laughs> know, and, say, ah. and they're just like, what the hell is going on? And then we'd have these big family get togethers and there'd be like goat. And, you know, then the, I had some Vietnamese relatives and they would bring like Vietnamese food and our next door neighbor was Korean and she taught my mom how to make kimchi. So, you know, I remember telling the story to John Taboda once and he said, you know, he's like, this all makes sense. He's like, you're pretty much trying to just recreate your childhood. So, you know, I was lucky. I was exposed to a lot of really great food early on. And, um, you know, I think that's really what kind of drove me in the direction of wanting to be be in the food world, because, you know, just as I like food.
1: And so uh, where'd you go to school?
3: Uh, like college or high school? Yeah, college. The University of Oregon.
1: Oh, OK, so coming out of college, what were what were you looking to do?
3: So that was interesting because, you know, I always worked in restaurants in college. Like during the summer, I worked, you know, both cooking and working as a waiter at a restaurant in Montana. I worked as a server all the way through college. always worked in restaurants, bartending, serving, prep cooking, you name it. I've done it at a restaurant. Um, And finishing college, I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do because I didn't feel ready for the professional world. Didn't really honestly never really related to a traditional, you know, professional job. So I went to Europe, got a job in Ireland, worked uh, as, as a as a uh, worked at a cooking Irish breakfast at a traditional Irish bed and breakfast in Galway, Ireland, and then also worked at a youth hostel. Traveled Europe a bit and kind of had aha moments. You know, I'd already been exposed to a lot of great food because of my family. But I remember trying like incredible bread and trying like incredible butter, and this was you know people forget, but like food is in America's had a complete and total renaissance that even places like Portland, we didn't have what you had. I mean, I graduated from college in 1999 and then, you know, went to Europe for a year in 2000. I came home, this was 17 years ago. Like there was, there were a few good places in town, but it wasn't like it is now.
1: No, not uh, well, even 10 years, five, 10 years ago.
3: Yeah. And I I remember just like, you know, moved away, then to San Francisco and DC did a few things, moved back to Portland in 2002 and Ken's Bakery had opened up on 21st, and I just blew my mind. I was like, this is like what we had in France. This is incredible. And I'd go there every day. And, you know, there were other little spots around, too, like Pearl Bakery. And, you know, there was good restaurants. But there was, you know, the, obviously back then there was Paley's Place was around and Wildwood's was around. And, you know, we'd go to the Wildwood Bar and, you know, have burgers. You know, back then, I you know, 21, 22 years old, 23 years old, I couldn't afford to, like, go out to nice dinners. Um, but the thing that people forget it— back then, like the farm to table thing was not, it was not yet democratized. It had been established, but it was still very much in the realm of nicer sit down evening restaurants. It was not yet at the point in mass where you could just go to your neighborhood cafe or bar and order something that, you know, was, was really unique and interesting. And that's, you know, I think what's really happened in Portland and not just Portland, but a lot of places in the last five or 10 years it's just the democratization of food and the access to food and how there's more good food, not just at the high end restaurants or high end grocery stores, but like at the neighborhood bars, obviously food trucks, then, then you know, there has been, and you know, we still got a long ways to go, but, but... Where do you think we have to go? See,
1: from my perspective, and you're talking about 2002, that was my first yeah. trip here. And, but I was just saying last night to somebody I never went to a meal like I had at Chessa last night, which were, you know, seven chefs serving beautiful, delicious food with, you know, my their mind on fresh and uh, i never had that in connecticut i never had anything like that and i like food right and i appreciate it but it was like lobster rolls and pizza no it's in, yeah so but there was nobody which doing there's that. nothing
3: wrong with well because if you're from connecticut the pizza's damn good and they know a thing or two about lobster rolls at least in that general oh, coastal area with, without a doubt but my point is i did yep. there wasn't a, just as you're talking about there wasn't the diversity
1: that wasn't really happening when i got here also in just it's not about me, but in two thousand five, right there we didn't have. There was the farmers market going on, yeah. but
3: but it wasn't it wasn't uh, widespread. It was no, there no. Was I a, mean, you're absolutely right about that. And and um, well, I think where do we have to go? I think the fundamental thing that we have to remember is we have access to good food living in a place like Portland, but not everyone does. And I think you know w- with you know you go to other places or you go to rural areas or even places in Portland. I mean, you go out to parts of East Portland and there's big, big parts of East Portland that, that, you know, and I'm not talking like Southeast Belmont. I'm talking, you know, once you get into the hundreds, there's areas of town that, that don't have, you know, where you, you can go a long ways without hitting a grocery store. So I, I think really, you know, you know, where we really have to go is really just ensuring that more and more people have access to, to good quality food because it, you know, becomes a health issue. It becomes, you know, hunger issue. That's something we've learned a lot about working with Feast is hunger on one level is not just feeding people in its immediate sense. I mean, it is. But, you know, when kids don't have access to good nutrition, they don't do well in school. When they don't do well in school, you know, they, they – they don't do well in life, and you know, there's a lot of things in Oregon that are honestly really screwed up. You know We have so much bounty, we're an incredible agricultural powerhouse, we're the sixth hungriest state. You know, I mean, there's there's just a lot of things that I think we need to work on and really understand that, you know, we're eating well in the city, but not everyone else is. And you know, these are not, it's not just a luxury, it's also a it's quality of life issue, it's a health issue, it's a performance issue. You know, Oregon has one of the highest school dropout rates in the whole country. You know a lot of this I mean I believe a lot of this core ties back to to food security issues you know and other things too but food security is very important food access is very important
1: so the fact that it's a blue state and there's uh, I think it generally speak well that's in, the, in an urban sense in a rural sense we're a red state so is that part of the problem do you think or part of the challenge is that they're not thinking about those issues um, in the same way, I mean, well, I, think, I mean, look at the way the Trump administration is treating food now.
3: Well, I, well, I mean, and, you know, I think without getting, I think the thing about politics, you know, po- politics are one thing, but political movements really do start from the dirt. And and I think you know, my perspective is unique. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't a Trump guy. <laughs> you know, I've never, I've, I, that's not my politics. But when you're, one thing to remember is that you know, people are product of their environments. And if you're, if you're, someone who's Bay, you know who, who in general is is making their, you know, living on the land, and you're living in Eastern Oregon. I mean, these are not places where sort of blue thought rain Right, and, that's, and, that's and that was my point. Yeah, and I and I think you know that that's the other thing. I think you know for as much as. You know, and I think this last election cycle really, really proves something. And I think it's not just in the U.S. It's just, it's just everywhere right now is we, we need to start talking more. We really need to understand each other more because I think, you know, Donald Trump is a symptom of a, of a larger problem, one that's put things into, into the forefront. But, you know, the reality is Oregon is, is a red state with a blue line through it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, population wise, it's, it's, you know, our population is in the Willamette Valley and, you know, most of the other state is pretty red. So, um, you know, I think politics aside, we need to figure out a way to feed people. And I think you know there are certain things that, that are pretty universal. Like, you know, if we can remove the fact that, you know, people need access to good food from the political, debate, I mean, nobody disagrees with that. It's just a matter of how do, we, how do we do that? And, and like, you know, politics from health care, I mean, it's also toxic right now and divisive. It just it's hard to have a good discussion. It's hard to have a good discussion about it.
1: It's not even, it's it's not only how do we get there, it's where it is on the priority list yep. for people. So, um, no. so, but I want to go back a little further. So when you, how did you really get into food? Because you, you said you worked in a lot of restaurants. Mm-hmm. We don't know you as a as a chef or someone who's a good cook. We know you as a guy who's a, you're a great promoter, you're a great, you're a visionary and you've taken those types of things and brought a lot of people, great experiences. So when you were in your 20s, what was, and that, by the way, it wasn't long ago. It wasn't, <laughs> well, for me, it was a lot longer. So, for you, you're talking in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. What what sort of things were you doing? You you're obviously an entrepreneur. Were you you did did you go to work for anybody at some point? I tried.
3: Yeah, I will say this. I always loved working in restaurants because it, a I love the, the community. Like you, always met the most interesting, most well traveled, the most well read, the most you know interesting people that. Ever in, in, in restaurants, and I always loved that you know the service industry, at least at that time, you know in, in Portland, you know Portland the cost of living was much lower. You know you you could have a certain quality of life. You could travel. You know and work in the food service industry is very flexible. And um, I don't know to the degree you know if it's if that's still the case, but at that time it truly was. I mean I worked at a restaurant, and you know I I you know owned a house in North Portland, and then my wife and I would travel a lot. I tried to work day jobs. I worked a couple of years actually in, in San Francisco as a tech journalist for tech TV. So I did that. And then I moved to Washington DC and I worked for William Mercer, in the government relations, you know, arm of a big fortune 500 company, which I actually thought was kind of interesting cause you would learn a lot kind of a lobbying side of, of, of things. But you know, for me, I, I working and climbing a ladder was just, I knew was never my path. I wasn't good at it. Um, anybody that knows me knows that I, I say what I think, you know, that doesn't bode well. Um, for the office environment always, you know so um, you know I, I, I and I knew I wanted to work in food, but I didn't necessarily know um, how or what. you know so you know short story, late 20s, I was working as a commercial real estate appraiser by day because my other sort of thing I'm really interested in is I is real estate in the built environment and neighborhoods. and you know at night I was waiting tables and my wife and I we had a, a cool little house in North Portland and I had a bad day at work and she had a bad day at work and we came home and we said, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing just watching our equity rise and, you know, having these jobs? Let's move. Let's sell our house because this was like, you know, 2005. Let's move to Spain. That's what we did. So the next day we were so happy. You know, we went out, we went to Fred Meyer, we bought paint and we fixed up our house and we sold it a couple months later. And, Know, then took a train trip all across the country, did a lot of things. I went to like a 10 day silent meditation retreat, which anyone knows me, being silent for 10 minutes, let alone 10 days is like probably the feat of my life. You know we took a train across America, we went hiking in the Rockies, then we flew to Switzerland, stayed in Switzerland for a month and then we lived in Spain for 10 months and then spent uh, three months in Portugal on organic farms. So we did this like you know year and a half trek through Europe and came back to Portland in late 2006. Had no clue. Like, literally, I was 30 years old. I was like, oh, my God. I don't really know what I want to do. I'm also curious how you funded that. So, Because a lot well, of us sold would like our to house. pick up. We sold so our that house. A, okay. So that was the, the thing. thing. You know, it was sort of like, I, you know, it was one of those things where it was like, there was, you know, we had bought a house in Portland in 2003. And then in 2000, the values, Well, we had done work to our house and crazy. the value had gone up. And, you know, we a lot of our friends were you know trading in their houses for bigger houses with equity and we were sort of like let's trade our equity in for some life experience because you know neither my wife or i you know were, were the kind of people that could fund ourselves and travel you know we come from both kind of working class families you know who work really hard but you know there's not you know, we're not we don't come from uh, the stock that you know can you know have fun in europe for a year <laughs> not 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 have to worry about the money
1: yeah it's not a cheap thing either. no
3: so we sold our house and everyone said we were crazy like what are you doing that's not what you're supposed to do and you know we we just knew it was the right thing to do and you know we had we lived in Madrid Spain we had a wonderful experience and that was really first time I lived in a culture that was just obsessed with food and and there was so much you know local stories about food and you know food identity was you know where you were from I mean you could always talk to people in Spain you know, and you relate to them based on, like, the local cheese or the local, you know, meat or whatever it was. And you know, one thing that I always loved about, about Spain is you, know, you, you could, if you were having trouble kind of breaking the ice with someone, you could talk about, like, jamón ibérico, and, and they would have things to say about it. Or you could talk about the local cheese, and they'd have things to say about it. And then, you know, food was this, like, universally binding thing that— You could just put the politics aside or, you know, because Spain has political issues, too. I mean, you know, they they 80 years ago had a a pretty bad civil war. I mean, you know, there's a lot of similarities. They have a very polarized two-party system, too. Yet they could all come together over food, and that was really powerful. But, you know, coming back to the U.S. late 2006, didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, It's like, okay, maybe I'll go into academia, applied for grad school at a couple places, and then literally became a food writing intern for Kelly Clark at Willamette Week and just – was was writing for Willamette Week, kind of. And the day that I got into a, a good university program, actually in Canada, the day that I got in, I got offered the uh, food critic job, or it was actually the food columnist job at Willamette Week in 2007. And I, I guess I thought, my wife and I thought, well, you know, we could go to grad school anytime, but pretty sure that I'll never be offered another, you know, food writing gig like this because even though it didn't pay well it was it was kind of it felt right Mm -hmm. so i didn't go to grad school took the job writing for willamette week and then i've been in food ever since
1: and how did it feel to see your name in the byline of the publication yeah you
3: know it felt it's so funny too because you know willamette week is is for you know for it's interesting because you know it's like it hasn't always been like the nicest about certain projects i've done but at the same time willamette week i think does Fulfill an important role in the city. It's like you know that we. It's good to have cheerleaders, and we have a lot of them. And you know, Willamette Week is definitely the the more critical, and you know, and I think that's important. We can't just can't be all cheerleading, but you know, for me at that point in my life, seeing my byline in Willamette Week felt amazing. You know, because you know, Willamette Week was the paper that you know, it was the scrappy alt alt weekly that you know had serious reporting cred. It was was like a year after Nigel had won a Pulitzer Prize. It was also at a time in Portland where there was just a lot of people. I mean, I used to – Willamette Week could come out every Wednesday and I would, you know, Karen Brooks with a C, C-A, you know, Karen Brooks with a C. There's two Karen Brooks in food writing back then in Portland. Um, that paper would come out on Wednesday and I couldn't wait to read it. I loved reading Jim Dixon's writing. He was such an amazing food writer. Heidi Yorkshire was writing for Willamette Week back then. And then over at the Oregonian, you had Kay Brooks, Karen Brooks, who obviously is incredible and always has been. Michael Zusman wrote for uh, the Oregonian. Christina Melander – um, you know and then Camus davis was at portland monthly so it, w- it felt really special to be writing about food at portland in that time because there was just so many really phenomenal phenomenally gifted writers
0: this would be a great time chris for us to talk about our good friends at standard tv and appliance
1: and gen air and gen air both founded in 1947 exactly what a coincidence and they've paired together to support this podcast. We're very happy about that. And if, we have good things to say.
0: Yeah. If you've dreamed of having a, a appliance that is connected to, to your Wi-Fi, for example, that you can control from, you know, maybe the office, Gen Air's got it. And standard TV appliance has the Gen Air.
1: Right. So you, you're connected in every other way. Why not set your Oven up, so it'll start when you're on your way home. Yep, or you got that casserole sitting in there, so it turns on and it's ready
0: right when you walk in the door.
1: Exactly. And this is this is the wave of the future, so get in now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love to have that. So I think it's great that we have standard TV and appliance, which is locally owned and
0: Oregon-based. It's awesome.
1: I agree. That's what we're looking for on this podcast. And um, also, they're so kind as to, if you've shopped for a Gen Air appliance, mm-hmm. use the word fork. And don't just say fork. Right. Don't don't walk up to the salesperson while you're purchasing the Gen Air and wink and say fork. Right. You right. need to just say, I heard this on right at the fork. And hopefully they'll know what you were talking about. But again, we suggest you say that anyway when you walk in the door.
0: Right. And the reason why is because they'll uh, they'll include a five-year warranty on your Gen Air appliance. Oh, thanks for yeah. supplying that information. Yeah. Yeah. Not- <laughs> <laughs> you could just mention, hey, by the way, I listened to Right at the Fork. But right, but five-year warranty is pretty there's good. There's a benefit to it. Yes, exactly. They've got uh, five
1: locations to serve you, so pretty much wherever you are, they are too. Right, there's one right there on uh, Sandy mm-hmm. that's that's great with a great showroom. Yep. And also, standardtvandappliance.com, if you go to our website, rightatthefork.com, you can click through and it'll take you right to the Gen Air portion of Standard TV and Appliance website. Do you remember what your first uh, – the first – article you wrote or first review that you did
3: do you remember who that was what, what restaurant that was so i wrote a story and you could still google it called burger wars and it was there was at the time not nationally and in portland there was a you know there was a uh i believe the 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 tagline was expensive burgers uh screw your wallet make love to your mouth but the idea was there was like this wave in portland of expensive burgers. Tom Hurley had a $28 burger with foie gras. And, you know, there was another chef who had an expensive burger at Gracie's restaurant at the Hotel Deluxe. And, you know, so I I wrote a book, a story on uh, the history of the Portland burger, which was like the first thing that I really put out there that wasn't like an event listing.
1: And how about a review?
3: You know, I will be honest. I, I, I've reviewed a few things. Adam Sappington gives me a lot of crap because, you know, we're friends now. We weren't then because I didn't know him. But I, I reviewed Country Cat, and I gave it a good review, but I referred to his broth as being not-so-sop-worthy. So, so he's still, he still says that to me like every once in a while. And he's like, hey, I saw you coming to the cat. Did you get any not-so-sop-worthy broth? You know, so – but, you know, I, I, I gave Adam a good review. I reviewed Beast for a Week. I reviewed um, uh, the, the – you know – Kenny and Zooks. In fact, I actually love this. You know, if you walk by Kenny and Zooks, my review's still hanging in the window. Broder, my reviews still hanging up. But I'll say this, I was never a good reviewer. And the reason why is I'm I'm too much and I'll fully admit this, I'm too much of a cheerleader to be that critical. I'm just not that critical of a person. And you know, I learned that as I was doing journalism, I wasn't I, I was more interested in like working with the restaurants and, you know, thinking that I could help them out in a certain way rather than wanting to like critique them. You know, and then don't get me wrong, like, food criticism is really important, but there's just people who are way better at it. And, uh, you know, I, I started doing events on the side as I was at Willamette Week. I actually started working with Elisa Donahue from Watershed now, and she used to have this great event. It was really, like, the first, I think, like, good Portland, like, tasting event, it which was called the Indie Wine Festival. And, you know, I started working with her, and that got my taste for food events. And then, you know— over the course of the next few years, started doing more and more event work across the country. And, you know, pretty soon I was working on food festivals in Texas and doing stuff with like Whole Foods all over the country. And
1: Was that something you pursued yourself or did people come see that you had experience in this, Well, what was a burgeoning food city and said, hey, this guy could bring something to the table for us?
3: You know, it was, I think what it was in my, what I do with events, I mean, obviously I have a point of view when it comes to food and, and chefs and. You know how an event should feel, and who should be involved, and but you know my real I think skill and, and what I like doing the most is is engaging with different organizations like you know tourism boards and media companies and you know um, you know other businesses and overseeing like you know way we partner with you know other companies you know sponsorship partnership and th- you know when you're good at that people find you <laughs> so you know I, I the big sort of break for me was honestly. Uh, in 2010, I um, mean, you know, I was doing events, and you know, before that, you know, I became the uh, food uh, contributing food editor for Portland Monthly, and I was the first one of the two first uh, editors for Eater Portland. I launched Eater Portland with Eva Hagberg in 2009, so we was we was doing a lot of things, but kind of getting less interested in the food journalism and more interested in the events. And uh, in 2009, uh, ISCP, the International Association of Culinary Professionals, announced they were doing their their um, their conference in Portland. And, and I was this young 33 year old who wasn't even an IACP member. And they reached out to me and asked me to be the host city chair. And that was really when we built an incredible program. We got a lot of, you know, Ken Rubin, who's another Portland guy, we worked together to get people like Moder Jaffrey and Ruth Reichel and Michael Ruhlman and all these like incredibly, you know, inspiring food people to come to Portland. And, you know, it was a huge success, um, you know, but, for a lot of reasons, not just my contributions, but I think you know Portland at the time was of interest in 2010, and you know, it was coming out of this down economy, and people were starting to do things again in 2010. And you know, I think um, the Portland conference was such a huge success that after that, like you know, Eater asked me to help create the Eater Awards with them in New York, and then I was pulled to do. You know, I started doing uh, national events with with Whole Foods, so I would produce events for Whole Foods within other festivals like New York City Wine and Food and, you know, the Eat Real Festival in, in Oakland, um, and then also uh, took over the branding and sponsorship development and partner development for the Texas Hill Country Wine and Food Festival, which then became Austin Food and Wine. So that was kind of how it just all sort of happened. But, you know, I kind of learned early on, if you are if you understand the business side of, of things, you will always have a role, you know. Um, and then, you know, I met Carrie and Emily in 2010, and we, it all, Feast just all came together out of that. You know, we all had our expertise and Janny as well. Um, we all had our various areas of expertise, and, you know, we all, we all came together, and that project just came together so organically. Um, honestly, I don't think it could have ever happened. Had we tried to do it a year earlier or a year later, it probably wouldn't have happened. Why is that? There, you know, it's interesting, like a restaurant or uh, everything is a product of its time. You know, it's like everything, everything, you know, and, and, you know, I think at that time there were various organizations like Travel Oregon that really wanted to work and, you know, do an event in Portland that really, or I'm sorry, in Oregon that really brought the food scene to life. Um, There was a lot of chefs and wineries and people in Oregon who were on the circuit nationally and doing events in other places. And I think we would all come home and say, why don't we have this here? I mean, we should have something here because, you know, Feast is a way of engaging Oregon and Portland with the rest of the industry and I think the core that's really the core thing it aims to do and we do other things too you know we've donated over $300,000 to hunger relief charities where we've you know we've we've we feel we we try to do our part to really make this event the community wants to be a part of but I think fundamentally what makes a great event is when you know you're you're able to um, it's important especially in cities like Portland that are sometimes a bit isolated to engage with with the greater industry and do it on your own soil. And that's really what Fee set out to do. And, you know, Carrie moved to Portland and Carrie Walsh moved to Portland and with Jannie in 2010. We had coffee. You know, she was instrumental in getting the New York City Wine and Food Festival off the ground. She understood how to market festivals and do the PR side. She had great chef connections as well. I understood how to you know develop on the business side and I had all the venue contacts obviously in Portland but I also had a lot of national brand contacts and I also had a really good network of chefs around the country having worked on festivals you know and and Janie was she, she could do anything she just you plug her in and she can do anything so you know she was we always we in the early days we called her the Swiss Army knife cuz whether it's like you know weighing in on marketing campaigns or designing signage she can do it and you need that too oh,
1: you, yeah. otherwise it be a very expensive process to get different companies or different people yeah. to do yeah. so it's good to have somebody who knows and we have everything those, else that's going on
3: yeah so. and and Gianni, you know she would step in in year 1 i mean literally that woman can do anything she would take photos she would she was like she would cook with chefs like if a chef needed someone to come in and cook you know she Carrie and Janny moved to portland to open a restaurant and, you know, Janny you know, <laughs> was literally, like, at the time, cooking at restaurants around town. So, you know, she came in and did anything. But then also Emily Crowley, who's been on the show. You know, Emily, who was just such an incredibly talented event producer, but also had just really wonderful connections in the wine world. You know, her husband's a winemaker, and she'd done, you know, helped start the Plate and Pitchfork event. So, you know, it was, it was just one of those things where... The right group of people just happened to want to do something at that time, and you know Carrie was new in town, and Emily was you know doing a number of events around town. It was like had we started a year later, probably everyone would have been too busy to to, to do feast. So it it that's kind of how it all came together.
1: And now you're a little busy doing it in addition to some other things too. As
3: well, it's funny because, you know, one of the funniest questions people ask is what do you guys do the rest of the year? And the answer is, you know, the whole thing, September 21st. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we take a, we try to take a little time off, but you know, we recap and then, you know, it's engaging. Everything, everything you see at Feast is a conversation. Like, you know, every sponsor you see was a negotiation. Every chef you see, there was a process and an ask every venue. So, you know, there's a lot of planning that goes into it and anyone, who's ever planned like a birthday party or a wedding knows, you know, events at any scale are kind of hard, um, you know, but we we love what we do and we still love it um, and, you know, we we I love working with the team. I mean, we we really, you know, having worked on other projects, I mean, I just feel so grateful to work with, with you know, such good people, both personally, we're all really good close friends and then also professionally. And, and that's it, great after yeah, six years now well, that you
1: can say that.
3: Yeah, no, it's, it is good. And then, you know, there's a whole other We have more people working with us now too, you know, who have joined the team and and really made incredible contributions and, you know, really helped us kind of grow. But, you know, Feast has exceeded our expectations. I don't, we all thought, oh, we'll just do this on the side. You know, it'll be this thing we do on the side. And, you know, it it became pretty clear pretty fast. Like I never thought Feast would have employees. You know, I never thought we, none of us did. And it it just sort of kind of took on a a life of its own. Is
1: it bigger than you originally thought? When you, in the first year, has it grown to beyond your expectations, or is it on track for what you thought it was going to be?
3: I mean, I, it. I think what's really exceeded my expectations is the the sort of way the community's embraced it, and not just the food community, but you know, we're we have we're able to work with like this year we're working with like the Portland Trailblazers on things and. You know, it it truly is, you know, kind of going back to the early experiences in, you know, Spain or my family. It's just an indication that food is this wonderful thing that brings people together. And people want, you know, it's this great human equalizer. You know, you sit down and you break bread with people and you have food with people and it just is this wonderful thing. So, yeah, it's definitely exceeded my expectations, though, and uh, all of our expectations. And, you know, in, in 2017, we really made it a concerted effort to really try to You know, not make big changes, but like, you know, bring in a lot of new faces and do some events that, you know, really highlighted a lot of what's happening in Portland right now, like vegetable-focused cooking. And, you know, um, know, so I think when the lineup comes out and the whole, you know, lineup of events comes out, you know, we're really happy about everything we've put together this year because we really made a focus uh, on, you know, every year it's like how do we best showcase our city? You know, and, and, you know, it's, it's this awesome opportunity to play host to the industry. And, and you know, we try to, we try to make sure we're, we're keeping that fresh.
1: And so is there, you know, from a consumer standpoint, is there a way that some of those events, the, the high-demand ones, don't go in fourteen se- or less than for- <laughs> 14 seconds? I tried to get in on the Aaron Franklin uh, dinner last year, and I literally was clicking refresh, 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 I and I never had a shot.
3: Well, to be honest with you, um, that had never happened before last year. And you know, last year the Franklin event and a couple of the others sold out in like fifteen minutes. And this year they sold out literally. People were ready, and they sold out like three events. That event, um, one of the other collaborative dinners, and this event we did with Bowl in China at the Multnomah Whiskey, Whiskey Library. They all sent out, sold out in less than a minute. Chris, we thought the website was broke. We're like, what is going on?
1: And when you're talking about this year, you're talking about last year. Yeah, 2016. So,
3: yeah. Yeah. So so the answer is you know that we didn't expect that you know and. Uh, I mean, it's it's you it's fun because, you know, you I think every every restaurateur that has a high demand, you know, for certain dinners probably feels the same way because you're like, wow, this is great that all these people are excited about your event. But at the same time, you're like, wow, this you know, it's you never want to hear that people can't get in, you know. So this year, I think our, our answer to that was just to plan, really try to plan a lot of events that that. You know, there's just a lot more events that people are going to be really excited about this year that are very different than what we've done in the past. So, so when
1: they don't get out on that, there's some good options. When do they go on sale?
3: Uh, June 1st is when the schedule goes live, which is a Thursday, and June 2nd, which is a Friday, is when tickets go on sale.
2: Right at the Fork is brought to you by Standard TV & Appliance. Standard TV & Appliance offers the largest selection, fast delivery, professional installation, and live kitchens where you can try before you buy. Oregon-based and family-owned, setting the standard since 1947. Standard TV & Appliance is your place for quality Gen Air appliances and more. LaRuda PDX. Get tickets now for the first ever LaRuda PDX Festival. Top chefs from Spain and around the world. Join forces with chefs from Portland dedicated to Spanish cuisine. It's a gastronomic festival July 14th through the 16th. That's four days of dinners, events, workshops, demos, and cultural experiences. Find out more and buy tickets at larutapdx.com. Portland Food Adventures. Imagine eating your way through Barcelona with Italo's Jose Chesa or Tuscany with Lardo and Grasa's Rick Giancarelli. Join right at the forecoast Chris Angeles with these great chefs in Europe this fall. Get more information under the blog tab at portlandfoodadventures.com where you can contact Chris directly. And buy Zupan's, unsurpassed quality. From the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland. West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupan's Markets.
1: So how did you get involved with Pine Street Market? Let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. So
3: Pine, Pine Street was an event. So Pine Street Market, um, you know, Jean-Pierre, who's a, a builder and developer in town, Jean-Pierre Villette is a friend of mine. And, you know, I had actually in 2014, you know, become bi I decided to be in New York for a year. And, and by being in New York, I mean, it, with all the things I have going on in Portland, I can never, it wasn't like I just left. I was kind of bouncing back and forth. But most of my, most of my time was in New York. And... Um, you know it's so interesting because uh, being in New York for really really showed me is like you know it basically there would be there's really no way I can live anywhere else. You know it's like uh, you know we we still had a lot going on here and I was coming home a lot and as I was there, JP and I were out in um, you know the the Gotham Market in in New York City. This was summer of 2015, and he told me he had bought this building. And they wanted to do a food hall. And I basically said, I, I really want to be involved in that. And so they already had plans. Pine Street Market would have been a food hall had I not been involved. But, you know, I, I was able to get on really early with the team. And you know, at first it was like, okay, guys, I'll help you, you know, basically be your filter on, you know, who, what would be a good mix of tenants. You know, I, I, that was going to be my role. And then I'll help you guys with a little some of the marketing and the announcement and all of that. And that was kind of my, the extent of it. But it, that project kind of quickly sucked me in, and, and you know, that was actually a big reason why m- my wife and I, literally after being in New York for a year, were like, this is, we're going back to Portland, you know, because uh, we we're, were excited to work on things in Portland, and, you know, um, living in New York was is great, but for me... I'm in the words of a mentor, you know, New York makes a better uh, mistress than it does a wife. You know, it's better to visit there and, you know, live in a place like Portland. So, Pine Street Market and, you know, also Feast were sort of the things that kind of brought me back after a year. But, you know, we went out and we, you know, wanted to do an event, you know, wanted to do a project, you know, that was something that would help revitalize that part of downtown. That was really the goal, you know, um, Pine Street Market. Had we done it somewhere on the east side, it would have looked different. You know, it would have, it would have been more, you know, it probably would have been more, I mean, it would have felt more like an east side thing. But, you know, downtown, we're like, what are we, we going to do that brings in families? What are we going to do that, you know, makes this section of downtown feel really special? And, you know, that particular building, a lot of us had really fond memories of because it was the old Quest nightclub. So, you know, I brought Nate Tilden in there, uh, you know, from Olympic Provisions and Clyde Common early on, and he said, wow, this is like where we used to, you know, smoke clove cigarettes and, like, flirt with girls from Beaverton. I mean, this is sort of like growing up in Portland, that part of town. It was the seedy, kind of gross nightlife district. And all those buildings are beautiful, but it was really underutilized. And, and you know, people talk about – it's funny because people talk about gentrification and they use that word sometimes with Pine Street. It's like, well, gentrification means displacement. You realize that in that part of downtown, you have parking lots. And, and, and Pine Street Market was a three-story building that – the upper two floors sat empty for, for, you know, years. And, you know, so we wanted to do something that really brought like families into downtown. And that's why the tenant mix looks the way it does. So it's like, you know, soft serve ice cream and it's, you know, it's a hot dog concept and, you know, something that was really approachable and fun and that would, would be a big attraction and and also celebrate, you know, the food culture of of Portland.
1: And what have you learned? uh, So it's been what a year and a half now. Is that right?
3: Um, so Pine Street opened about a year ago. Right. So, okay, about a
1: year. So what have you learned? <laughs> You've had a couple of things closed down, right? Not too well, long Well, not a-
3: necessarily. I mean, well, I think there has been a concept, concepts that have switched out. You know, I think one clear thing to say is that, mm-hmm. you know, I think in general that, and both of those concepts are great, by the way, um, just what works best in a market environment is kind of fast, casual, high high volume. You know, you want to be able to... You know, basically the, the, the perfect concept for a market is like, you know, the OP Worst concept. Like people go there, they get re- pretty interesting food, but it's like fast and, you know, it's there's limited seating there. Um, that works really well. I think the concepts, you know, John Gorham was really smart to, you know, Shalom Y'all still exists and still a great place. But, you know, by putting in the Bless Your Heart Burger place, perfect concept for a market. And, you know, Common Law was really great too. And I But I think, you know, that type of concept was very different than of everything else in the market. Mm-hmm. Um you know but I think you know by and large Pine Street Market has done done well, you know. Um, it it has really revitalized that little chunk of downtown. I mean you go there on a Saturday and it's like it's so busy. Or you go there for lunch and it's just so busy.
1: Yeah, I go there for lunch often. Courtney and I that's the
0: only place we've been able to get together for lunch. Yeah. Yeah. But, but but to your point, my girls that's their favorite place to yeah. go because it's inside you can walk in and, and each one has a different thing that they love whether it's the pizza or the ramen
1: I'm an advocate for families so of you go there I'll go there
3: Let's yeah, I'll yeah. meet here I think it, that, that, that was really kind of nice. the idea it sounds like well yeah I mean the other thing too is like you know that we had some really so I worked with the development team basically to you know my job was to figure out the food part you know and and, and get the right people in there and then help them develop you know concepts we encouraged people to not we didn't want second or third locations of things we wanted so for example, you know, talking to, um, you know, Salt and Straw, you know, they were like, well, we have this salt, soft serve concept that we want to do. And that was perfect because it was like Salt and Straw, but they were doing something totally different. And even with Barista, you know, doing, you know, Brass Bar was something totally different. And, you know, Pollo Bravo was something, it wasn't Toro Bravo, it was like, you know, it was rotisserie chicken, which is a big thing in a lot of places. Certainly a big thing here now. I mean, mm-hmm. the last year it's kind of blown up and there's a lot of good places, but, you know, it was you know it was you know same thing like um you know Ken Ken Forkish was doing a very you know the Trifecta Annex is a different concept from his other places so the idea was you know let's do something with experienced operators it was the other thing we we wanted this wasn't like a place where you were going to necessarily bring in you know first time restaurant not that they couldn't do it but you know if we were like we want this to really be kind of reflective of of what's happening in portland right now and and bringing in certain operators who were who were known and really kind of putting a stamp on that little piece of downtown portland so um you know it was it was interesting we certainly learned a lot you know and if i think you know the the hardest thing about pine street is there really wasn't a template for it in portland and uh you know i think we learned a lot in doing it and i, I gotta say i'm really grateful for i mean the development team and all the operators they really you know jumped on something that was you know really hadn't been tested there was a lot of hiccups too i mean you know figuring out like how do you run a food hall you know it took it took the operations team a while to really figure that out and i think it's still a conversation by the way it's not a, just a conversation in portland you know food halls are kind of a new thing nationally and i think you know what's happening with rising costs of real estate in a lot of country is in a lot of parts of the country are kind of forcing new models. So there's there's a lot happening right now that kind of feels like, you know, a lot of models are being tested. And I think you're gonna see more things like Pine Street Market. I mean, there there's just a new the new Portland food hall, which I checked out um last week. You know, there's like a bokeh is there and mm. you know, um there's also, you know, the zipper which actually opened before Pine Street. I mean that's a it's very different in that how it's laid out, but you know, technically that's a food hall too and that's a really
1: and that's Wonderful. that's the East Side thing you were talking about when you said well, it would look very different. That's yeah. what I was thinking. It would look like the zipper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or might, might not.
3: Well, I mean, well, that project. I mean, if you look at you know the developer of that project, Kevin Kavanaugh. I mean, he's done a lot of cool stuff on Sandy. You know, he's his building is home to Providor, which is Provador yeah, is incredible. It's nice. And you know, Han Oak is right there, and you know, Nomad is there, and you know, so um, yeah, it. it the East Side is very different because the East Side restaurants are destinations, certainly, but they serve the neighborhoods more. And a restaurant concept or a restaurant business is always going to look very different when it's located close to where people work than, than close to where people live. You know, it's just, that's the reason why we didn't have butcher shops and cheese shops in Pine Street Market. We thought about it, but then we thought, you know, people buy ingredients close to where close to where they live. I mean, other than like the farmer's market, which is a big destination, of course, but, you know, there's a reason why you don't see like a New Seasons or a Whole Foods in the middle of downtown. It tends to be closer to where there's residential. And, you know, for that reason, you know, w- we didn't have cheese shops. We didn't have, you know, it wasn't. it wasn't that at all. It was just, it was meant to be a, a cluster of smaller restaurants to serve, you know, people who who work downtown or you know people who bring their families downtown that was kind of the point of it so definitely learned a lot from the process and you know it's it's uh, you know, it's definitely been an evolution and you know I think you know largely successful there's I know of a number of, of other food hall projects people are planning in Portland so it's definitely a concept you'll see more of
1: I think it's good we have the you know our food carts and this is somewhere in the rainy months yeah. it's a little less challenging mm-hmm. so glad you did that so Austin, Texas. <laughs> not by the time this streams, that will have already happened. When is this? So streaming? how great was it? So what was great about that?
3: Well, I don't know yet. <laughs> I know that,
1: that's my point. Um, I'm looking forward to going down. What uh, and and a little bit of barbecue. Well, and, it's, and the I say thing that is, though, loosely it's,
3: there will be barbecue, but it's not a bar- barbecue festival, right? Per se,
1: it's a music and food festival. It's
3: mostly food with a bit of music. You know, and and Team Feast is the production partner on it. So you know, we have other there's other people involved in it. Aaron Franklin is a partner in it from Franklin Barbecue, and then our friend James Moody, who uh, was one of the founders of Fun 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 Fest, which was a great music festival in Texas. And you know, so yeah, we came together and we wanted to do something that felt a little different. That you know, I guess you know, th- there's a lot of geography-based food festivals in the country. And when I say that, I mean all food is rooted in geography, but you know the Feast Portland. I mean, that was actually one thing with Feast Portland we said early on. We're like, we don't want to be the Portland, Oregon Wine and Food Festival because then you, it's Charleston Wine and Food and Austin Food and Wine. You just kind of get lumped into this, mm-hmm. you know, this slew of festivals. It's like auto shows. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's not what we wanted. So we we, we named uh, – actually, give a shout-out to Kate Sokoloff, a great Portland creative. Uh, she actually named Feast Portland. And, you know, we felt that felt good because it just felt a little different. And, you know, Portland – Portland's a little different, you know. We don't we don't like to run with the pack, um, but you know the, the port feast is a really big geographically based festival. You know, it's like we have forty five events. We have you know all Pacific Northwest wineries with like two exceptions, and those two exceptions are, have very strong geographical reasons why we have them um, involved in Portland. You know, we sh- we showcase you know like ninety percent of our beer is is from Portland and Oregon you know um the ingredients we keep in the northwest is very much a showcase of of the pacific northwest in portland
1: which which is a good thing yeah. i mean not every city and not every region can boast that's true what we have so so
3: hot luck is not that it's it's different in that it sort of leads with a point of view rather than geography i mean in some ways it could only be in austin texas but you know it, it's not called like the austin you know you know food festival or whatever it's it's hot luck the idea is to do something that I guess tweaks the model a little bit, you know, it's, there's not a grand tasting. That's one thing that makes it really different. There's not the big event that has all the vendors and all the wineries. Um, It's more focused on kind of, you know, chef driven parties, nighttime events, music shows. Um, Some of the music shows are really fun. Like we have like, you know, Olympic provisions is like slinging hot dogs at a black lip show. And we have like, you know, um, Thurston Moore, who was the, you know, the front man of Sonic youth is doing a solo show. And we have a, Pastry chef uh, Rebecca Mason from Houston is doing Thurston s'mores that she's like handing out at that event. So there's you know Yoshi from uh, Otoko who's, who's a chef in Austin, Texas is like you know cutting up a yellow yellowfin tuna at, at a at a Shona knife show. I mean there's a lot of like kind of weird, fun, cool stuff. And then you know Aaron is in addition to uh, being um, you know a, a a barbecue guy and a really actually talented cook, he's also a great welder. So Aaron's actually welding a lot of the equipment the chefs are cooking on. So chefs like Adam Perry Lang and Andy Ricker and the Momofuku guys and you know, a lot of Texas folks. So you know I think that Hot Luck's going to be a really interesting, kind of fun mishmash that feels very different than any other food festival out there. So we're very excited about it.
1: I'm sure you are. So what do you do? What's your outside of food? What do you do on weekends or uh-huh. when you have some when you have time? What do you What do you like to do on your own?
3: Oh man. Um, you know, that's always the thing. I travel a lot. This is one of the things because I travel a lot and I eat out a lot when I'm in that's town. Part of traveling. I think the unfortunate thing and I've talked to you about this Chris when we've hung out is like lately I've made a real concerted effort to like eat at all the new Portland places because there's so many exciting things going on, but it's like when you're on the road for like 10 days, you're like, "Oh, you want to come home and, you know, eat juice and you know, drink juice and you know, chill out." But um, you know, I don't know. My wife and I, we we do a lot of hiking. Um, you know, we 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 try to stay active in the community, not just in food, but you know, we try to support you know things like the Oregon Symphony and you know other other events. We try to stay as engaged as possible. Um, you know, it's it's funny because a lot of my she- I don't really a lot of my friends, my closest friends, you know, several of them are in food, but a lot of them aren't. So you know, a lot of my friends are architects. I have a few friends that are attorneys. So. Do,
1: do they get you?
3: Oh yeah, I mean we do all.
1: Get, but I understand. I, my thing is, there's these categories of people in Portland. Mm-hmm. So There's X percent that know there's a food scene and mm-hmm. re, you know, read eater and are aware of feast and know who the chefs are. Then there is this whole group of people who think they're foodies or, or they're food experts and they're going to Portland City Grill and you know that that's their Jakes. That's their idea of the food scene. So, do you have any idea, by the way, what percentage of people are really the the food demographic here? Who's like uh, in the whole metro, I would bet it's a small percentage of people who really know what's going on.
3: Yeah. I mean, you're probably, you're, you're probably right about that. I don't know the percentage, but you know, I, I would say all of my friends, like food is such a big part of my life that, you know, it's every single one of my friends is into food. They just might not be a chef or they might not be in the industry, right. but you know, like my, well,
1: it's hard to be your friend and not <laughs> you know, hey, let's go to Applebee's. That's yeah, not that ain't gonna, gonna happen. That ain't gonna happen. Exactly. But
3: you know, I mean, at the same time, though, I I will say this: I'm not a food snob. You know, like like I don't. There's a lot of things that, you know, it's so funny. It's like you know, the food trends are what they are, and I get it. You know, you you know food journalism needs to push trends because people need exciting things to talk about and you provide conversation's points and then the thing that was cool last year like avocado toast now everyone hates avocado toast and I'll just go on the record as saying I love avocado toast and and I'm not going to stop liking it but but you know there's all these there's all these there's sort of this like it it's almost like music and like you know there's 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 a certain thing that everyone kind of gets on a certain train and then it it passes i mean i, I don't really
1: Oh, we could. Yeah, we could do a podcast on just what what has come in and what yep. has come out in the last last couple of years.
3: But I will say this. There's a lot of really good restaurants right now in Portland that I'm enjoying. I mean, you know, lately I've been trying to make a circuit of just places I haven't been. to. I was actually embarrassed. To... I, I,
1: get, I gave you 30 seconds. We're almost out of time. Okay. So just reel off the places that have really impressed you in lately. Lot, yeah, lately.
3: Um, I mean, I love the chicken at Provador. If you haven't had that, it's incredible. Han Oak, obviously, he's getting a ton of press now, but well deserved. I mean, those dumplings are like the most delicious things. Um, you know, this is, kind of goes without saying, but, you know, if you haven't been to Castan in a while, you got to go back because Justin's kind of top of his game, but also the service there is kind of at the top of its game right now, too. It really feels special and it's important. We have restaurants like that in Portland, they should be supported. Um, you know, I love, uh, gosh, I mean, I. Nostrana's is a restaurant I can't get enough of. It's been around twelve years and it still feels so fresh. Um, you know, there's just there's a lot happening in Portland right now. You could you could go on and on and on.
1: I know you could. We could do this another hour, but yeah. um, but I appreciate your coming. Um, and for me, I love the fact that there's new things going on. But I also love the fact that there are places like Nostrana and Higgins that we oh, yeah. that we need. To, you know, those of us who can't go out and, pay every, night, and- every night, every night. I want, I'm it's a double-edged sword having all these new places takes away from the ability to go enjoy the places that have stood the test of time and barmingo Barmingo right that was one of my favorite date spots back in 2006.
3: yeah I mean the Jerry Jerry makes great pasta man. yeah that was great. Thanks so much Mike
1: Thanks. appreciate it
3: All right we gotta move.
2: Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Intro music by Arielle Varinis. Find links to her music in the show notes section. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at foodpodcastpdx or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com.